Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the Global Church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is based upon the lectionary readings for September 23, 2018, and it's entitled, Welcome the Child. For the past three years, I've had the privilege of directing the children's ministry at the Episcopal Church I attend in Palo Alto, California. Part of my work is administrative. I help organize seasonal events for families, purchase toys, books, and other materials for the nursery and the children's chapel, and connect with parents and ministry volunteers over email or coffee. But the bulk of the work, the fun part, involves spending time with children. Sometimes this means reading board books to toddlers, or cuddling a screaming infant while his parents make a hopeful dash for communion. At other times, it means building Lego towers with six-year-olds, asking a fifth grader which Harry Potter novel she's up to, or fielding impossible questions about God, Jesus, and the Bible. Some recent zingers include, Where do the animals on Noah's Ark go to the bathroom? Are angels boys or girls? And, Did Jesus walk on water because he couldn't swim? In this week's Gospel reading, Jesus takes a little child into his arms, turns to his disciples, and says, Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes not me, but the one who sent me. On the face of it, this tender gesture is so small and so straightforward, it's easy to miss its import. But consider how radical a teaching this actually is for the disciples and for us. Jesus doesn't say, Welcome the child because it's a loving or kind or ethical or socially beneficial thing to do. He says, do you want to see what God actually looks like? Did you want to find God's stand-in hidden here among you? Are you curious about the truest nature of divine power and greatness? Then welcome the child. Welcome the child and you welcome God. The context for this remarkable claim is an argument that breaks out among the disciples when Jesus explains, for the second time, that he will suffer, die, and rise again after three days. The disciples don't understand a word, Jesus says, but they're too afraid to ask questions. Instead, they argue about who among them is the greatest. When Jesus asks what their quarrel is about, they refuse to answer. They're too embarrassed. But he knows, so he brings a child into their midst, gathers a child into his arms, and upends his disciples' notions of greatness and power. Whoever wants to be first must be last of all and servant of all. I've spent the past few days reflecting on the link Jesus makes between children and God, between childlikeness and godlikeness. I've done so both from the perspective of my work as a children's minister and as a parent. Perhaps if I didn't have so much experience with children, I'd be tempted to sentimentalize the connection. I've heard well-meaning people suggest, for example, that Jesus likens children to God because children are so purely good or unselfish or accepting or meek. Well, I don't know children like that. The ones I know are far more interesting. They're feisty, clever, quick, fierce, generous, selfish, naughty, obedient, curious, bored, quiet, loud, challenging, funny, surprising, solemn, and exhausting. I think Jesus knew as much when he described children as trustworthy representations of God. So what are the connections? What can we learn about God by welcoming children? How can children open us up to deeper, more authentic communion with Jesus? This is by no means an exhaustive list, but here are some possibilities I've been mulling over. 1. Children teach us to honor our imaginations as pathways to God. Every Sunday when I teach Children's Chapel, I'm amazed by the imaginative scope and power of young children. They can stack 50 Lego bricks together and see an entire city. They can cover a piece of construction paper in what looks to me like scribbles, and then tell a fully formed story based on the lines and squiggles. When I tell them Bible stories, they can fill in creative details using the full range of their senses. 
Here's what the perfume in the woman's alabaster jar smelled like. Here's what Peter's calloused feet in Jesus' hands felt like. Here's what the bread of the Last Supper tasted like. In this week's lecture, Jesus invites the disciples to imagine a world where death doesn't have the final word, where inexpressible suffering gives way to irrepressible joy, where resurrection is not merely a possibility but a promise. But the disciples can't make the leap. They're bound by preconceived notions of who and what the Messiah must be, and they lack the imagination to envision a world as revolutionary as the one Jesus holds out to them. Doctrine, dogma, and theology, in other words, hold their spiritual senses captive. Welcome the child, Jesus says in response. Open your imaginations. Return to the capacity for wonder, newness, and strangeness you knew as a child. Two, children teach us to risk hard questions on our way to God. As I mentioned earlier, kids aren't afraid to ask awkward, challenging, and even impossible questions. They're naturally curious, they're not embarrassed by their ignorance, and they're willing to risk social discomfort to get to the truth. If they don't understand something, they ask, and they persist in asking. In contrast, the disciples in this week's Gospel story miss an opportunity to draw closer to Jesus, because they're too afraid to ask hard questions. In telling them candidly about the suffering that lies in his future, Jesus offers his disciples the possibility of a deeper, more vulnerable-making intimacy with him. But they refuse the invitation, either because they don't have the courage to admit their ignorance, or because they can't bear to hear truths that might cause them pain. Perhaps they believe, as we so often do, that avoiding the uncomfortable stuff will save them. Whatever the case, their unwillingness to ask tough questions of themselves, of each other, and of Jesus, limits their growth and their fellowship with God. 3. Children teach us to trust God's abundance. Young children generally expect that there's enough to go around. Enough time, enough hugs, enough attention, enough love. Also, enough Teddy Grahams, cheddar-flavored goldfish, and munchkin donuts. It doesn't occur to them to fear scarcity unless they're conditioned to do so. Left to themselves, they assume plenitude. In her memoir, The Cloister Walk, Kathleen Norris tells a beautiful story about St. Therese of Lisieux. When Therese was four years old, she was shown a handful of colorful ribbons, and asked to choose one. Entranced, she simply responded, I choose all. The disciples in this week's story, though, don't believe that all is available in the kingdom of God. They don't lean into Jesus' generosity, sufficiency, and abundance. Believing that what's available to them is meager and inadequate to start with, they quarrel for first place, first dibs, first prize. In response, Jesus points them to the non-striving, unambitious, open-hearted trust of a young child, as if to say, stop racing, Stop competing, stop scrambling. There is enough. I am enough. And finally, children teach us what divine power looks like. This, I think, is the most radical lesson of the four. A young child is a very picture of helpless dependence, of powerlessness, of need. In some cultures, children are socially invisible. In others, they're legally unprotected. In all cultures, children are at the mercy of those who are older, bigger, and stronger than they are. And this... This shocking portrait of dependence and vulnerability is the portrait Jesus offers of God. In the divine economy, power and prestige accrue as we consent to be little, to be vulnerable, to be invisible, to be low. We gain greatness not by muscling others out of our way, but by serving them, empathizing with them, and sacrificing ourselves for their well-being. Whatever human hierarchies and rankings we cling to, Jesus upends as he holds a tiny child in his arms. Do we want to see God? Do we really want to see God? Then look to the child abandoned in the alleyway. Look to the child in detention at the U.S. border. Look to the child a priest is molesting. 
Look to the child's dying of gunshot wounds in his kindergarten classroom. Look to the child a parent is trafficking. Look to the child who can't access health care and education or dinner. Look to the child drowning in anxiety and depression. Look to the weak, the small, the simple, the vulnerable, and the helpless. Look to the ones who are not in charge. Look at the tiniest faces and see God. One of the most central and amazing truths about Christianity is that God became a helpless human child. In this week's Gospel story, Jesus underscores that stunning truth with another. All children everywhere represent God's heart, God's likeness, God's power. To welcome a child is to welcome the divine. To cultivate childlikeness is to cultivate godliness. To consent to be little is to become great. Welcome the child. For books this week, Dan reviews The Ninth Hour by Alice McDermott. Alice McDermott's eighth novel is set in the tenement housing of Irish Catholic Brooklyn at the turn of the 20th century, which is to say a place much like where she was born, raised, and attended Catholic schools. To be more exact, most of the novel takes place in the convent of the Little Nursing Sisters of the Sick Poor, and thus a liturgical reference of the book title. In any number of interviews, McDermott has spoken openly and at length about her own Catholic faith. I love the gifts of the Church, she has said, and I'm constantly dismayed by its failings. In the late afternoon of a dark and dank February 3rd, was there a moment of the year better suited to despair? A young husband named Jim, aged 32, barricaded himself in his apartment, turned on the gas tap to the oven, then carried the rubber tubing into his bedroom and began to suck on the hose. Two weeks earlier, he had been fired from his job for unreliability and insubordination. In addition to killing Jim, the gas also ignited a fire that raged through the small apartment. Left behind to fend for herself was his pregnant wife, Annie. This being Catholic Brooklyn of an earlier time, Annie is rightly worried whether the church, with all its rules and regulations, will allow Jim to receive a proper burial since he committed suicide. By mere chance or divine providence, take your pick, an aged and irreverent nun named Sister St. Savior happened by the apartment at just the right time and intervened to help Annie, beginning with a proper burial for Jim. She also introduced her to the convent, where Annie and her newborn baby, who is named after Sister St. Savior, find refuge. It is in the convent, among the other nuns who exude a greedy sort of grace, that Annie experiences the mercy, kindness, and help to continue life in the midst of tragedy. There is Sister Illuminada, in charge of the basement laundry, where Annie is given work. There is Sister Lucy, insistent, humorless, and severe, a person for whom all joy was thin ice. Sister Jean believed that all human loss would be redeemed. Ours is an unfair world with unanswered prayers. This is an imperfect Catholic church and an imperfect convent of sisters, but it is nonetheless a place that mediates the loving care of a good God. The novel reminded me of the Spanish mystic and Catholic saint Teresa of Avila, who once said that God is found in the pots and pants. Today, Alice McDermott is a Richard A. Maxey Professor of Humanities at John Hopkins University. Her 1998 novel Charming Billy won the National Book Award, and her other novels have been finalists for a Pulitzer Prize. For movies this week, Dan reviews Rachel Carson. This documentary film in the PBS series called American Experience pays tribute to the inspirational life and work of the science writer, environmentalist, and activist Rachel Carson. She's one of those rare persons about whom it can be said that in retrospect she wrote more than she knew. She changed the cultural paradigms of her day to the extent that there really is a before and after Rachel Carson. Carson began her career as a marine biologist at the U.S. Bureau of Fisheries, 
but she always wanted to be a writer. After a trilogy of books about the oceans, won her a National Book Award and the number one position on the New York Times bestseller list, she quit her federal job to write full-time. Today, she is best remembered for her subsequent book, Silent Spring, which she finished while she was dying of cancer. It, too, became a runaway bestseller for the way it boldly challenged the unquestioned orthodoxies of the day, the benevolence of petrochemical corporations, the complicity of government, the authority of science, and the hubris of technology. At the center of the story was the use of the poisonous pesticide DDT. During her own day, Carson was vilified as a communist and a Luddite. Among her, among her many posthumous honors in 1980, President Jimmy Carter honored her with the Presidential Medal of Freedom, our country's highest civilian honor. Dan watched this film on Netflix streaming. And lastly, for poems this week, The Observer by Rainer Maria Rilke. I can tell a storm by the way the trees are whipping, compared to when quiet, against my trembling windows, and I hear from afar things whispering I couldn't bear hearing without a friend or love without a sister close by. There moves a storm, the transforming one, and runs through the woods and through the age, changing it all to look ageless and young. The landscape appears like the verse of a psalm so earnest, eternal, and strong. How small is what we contend with and fight. How great what contends with us. If only we mirrored the moves of the things and acquiesced to the force of the storm, we too could be ageless and strong. For what we can conquer is only the small, and winning itself turns us into dwarves, but the everlasting and truly important will never be conquered by us. It is the angel who made himself known to the wrestlers of the Old Testament, for whenever he saw his opponents propose to test their ironclad muscle strength, he touched them like instruments, like strings of an instrument, and played their low-sounding chords. Whoever submits to this angel, whoever refuses to fight the fight, comes out walking straight and great and upright, and the hand, once rigid and hard, shapes around as a gently curved guard. No longer is winning a tempting bait. One's progress is to be conquered instead by the ever-mightier one. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for September 23rd, 2018. I'm Debbie Thomas.